0: Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. For the past couple of weeks, I have been uh, putting off a blood test that the doctor ordered for me. Not because I'm so concerned about what the results will show, but I don't do well with the sight of blood. In fact, it was about five months ago, I almost fainted during just a simple blood test. It was embarrassing, but but they got all concerned, had to lay me out flat, give me orange juice, all kinds of things uh, before they let me go. Now, many people feel um, kind of the same way that I do about blood tests, about all the blood in the Bible. Now, you can't read very far in the Bible without coming across the sight of blood. Uh, We've been talking about some of the sightings. There are bloody murders, there are bloody wars, there are bloody punishments that are demanded. In fact, the word blood uh, appears 408 times in the pages of the Bible. So like me, when it comes to blood work, many people have decided to kind of uh, avoid The Bible as much as necessary, especially maybe the earlier portions of the Old Testament where there seems to be a lot more blood than the latter portions of the Bible. But the blood is there in the Bible for a reason. In fact, it would be fair to say that blood is is like a red thread woven throughout the entire Bible. I don't know if you've noticed this red thread kind of on the backdrop in the middle of all this thread, but that's the point that's being made there. The theme of blood is Is a theme that's woven throughout the pages of the Bible. And if we get squeamish and avoid the blood in the Bible, we really will miss the entire point of the Bible. So today, we conclude this important series by looking at the act that is responsible for most of the blood in the Bible, and that is sacrifices. Now, sacrifices is not something that's exclusive just to the Bible. In fact, the offering of a sacrifice to a deity is the single most common feature of ancient cultures. And the question you have to ask is, I wonder why that is. Why would cultures that never see each other and interact with each other at different places around the world, why as we discover more and more about these ancient cultures, why would they all have some form of sacrifice that's true of them? Well, the reason is because we are all, as human beings, we are moral beings. And that shows up in at least three ways, consistently, no matter what the time is, no matter what the place is, The fact that we are moral beings shows up in these three ways. First of all, it shows up whenever we argue. We argue a lot. And the reason we argue is because we have strong opinions about what is right and what is wrong. And so we strongly make our point about these things are right and these things are wrong. And we don't just think that these things are right just for us or wrong just for us. Now, we may say that in our particular culture, but Those people who say, no, it's just right for me. You can do whatever you want to do. As soon as you do something they think is wrong, they'll argue with you. Because we have this sense that our understanding of right and wrong is not just for us. It's not just personal. It's for everybody. That's why we argue, and we make our point so strongly, and we protest so profusely whenever we are wrongly treated, and we fight. This is why we do it, because we're moral beings. And then that leads to the second evidence of the fact that we're moral beings is we all feel guilt. Throughout all of time, no matter where it is, no matter what the ideas are in the person's mind, every single person struggles with this sense of guilt. They may try to excuse it, but it just keeps surfacing in their hearts. No matter what the standard of right and wrong is, we are all clear that we've come up short. We violated even our own standards. And then that brings us to the third truth about our moralness, and that is that we all have this strong sense that we've got to do something about this guilt. We have to pay for this guilt. We must pay in some way. We must do something to make up for the wrong that we have done. This is throughout all of history. This has been part of the human experience. This is why every justice system that has been developed demands a payment of some kind for breaking the laws of that culture. So in our culture, in many modern cultures, whenever someone goes to prison, we refer to it as they are paying their what? Debt to society. There's a payment that's involved in this. Now sometimes it's clear to us what that payment should be, but most often it's really not that clear what the payment should be. And that's either because We've done something wrong that you really can't pay for. We, no matter how much we pay or what we pay, it, it's not going to undo the wrong that was done. It's not going to make it right again. And sometimes, actually oftentimes, the wrong that we do isn't necessarily against an individual. It's a private wrong. So who do we make that guilt payment to? This is where sacrifices come in. Without ever being told, cultures would turn to their idea of God and offer some kind of sacrifice in an attempt to pay for the guilt that they felt. Now, whenever cultures would do this, they were both right and wrong. They were right in the fact of the guilt and in the fact that that guilt required a sacrifice of some kind to pay for it. But every single culture has guessed wrong about the Kind of sacrifice that it really would take to pay for our own moral guilt. Now, in fairness to all cultures, no one could have ever imagined the kind of sacrifice that our guilt actually requires. It's so surprising that God reveals it to us in three stages over a long period of time. He reveals this in three major events that end up revealing the three requirements of the sacrifice that's going to be needed to pay for the guilt of our wrong. We're going to look at these three events and the requirements that are represented by each of these events in the Bible. Requirement number one is that in order for a sacrifice to, to really pay for our guilt, it has to be another life. It has to be another life. It turns out that our guilt causes a life debt, not a monetary debt. The first mention of blood in the Bible occurs when Cain killed his brother Abel. Now, why did he do that? Well, it was all about the question of what kind of sacrifice would be acceptable to God. Here's what we read in Genesis 4, 2 through 5. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. So in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. So Abel was a rancher, Cain was a farmer. So when it comes to the idea of I've got to offer some kind of sacrifice for the guilt that I've experienced here, it makes sense that they would each bring an offering to God from what they did, what they had. But it turns out that God only accepted one offering. Now, as you read through this story, just two questions kind of automatically pop into your mind. The first question is, why is there so much emotion attached to these sacrifices? I mean, it's just some meat and some vegetables. It's just a a gesture towards God. This certainly isn't something to get so upset about, so upset that you actually end up killing your brother over it. That's taking it too far. Why all the emotions? But it turns out this isn't just sibling rivalry. This isn't just a fight gone bad. This is about God's favor. That's what both brothers were seeking, was the favor of God. Like every sacrifice, the purpose of this sacrifice that they offered was to remove the guilt of their sin and receive God's favor. Guilt is a tremendous weight that we all carry. Throughout all of history, you see evidence of it over and over again. It's just a massive weight, and they were trying to get rid of their guilt. And so when Cain saw God look with favor on his brother Abel's offering, but not on his offering and therefore not on him, it pushed him over the edge. And it says here he was very angry, and his face was downcast. He was distraught and angry. The second question that pops in your mind as you read through the story is, why does God care? What's the big deal, whether it's produce or meat? What, what difference does it make? But again, this was not just about two brothers trying to gain God's favor. It was that, but it was more than that. It, it, it's in the pages of the Bible, and it's the first mention of blood for a good reason, because this was also about God, being very, very clear about the kind of sacrifice that would be acceptable to him and would actually pay for the guilt of our sin. It was God making the first statement of the kind of sacrifice that would be required. So he responds to Cain by not accepting his sacrifice and then telling him to get it right. It wasn't that God didn't want to accept Cain. He just wanted to make it very clear about the kind of sacrifice that was going to be needed for guilt not just for Cain and Abel, but for all of us. So in the next two verses, Genesis 4, 6-7, we read this, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? This is not a personal slight on Cain. This is about getting it right. And so God just says, Cain, it's okay. Just get it right. And then I will display my favor to you. Well, what, what is right? What does it mean, getting it right? Obviously, bring an animal sacrifice like Abel did. That's, what God, that's all you need to do. Then then, then don't, don't remain angry and don't remain downcast. You'll be accepted. So what is the point that God is making in this story? The point is this. Sin causes a life debt, not a monetary debt. This is very, very important for us to understand. When our laws are broken, there are two kinds of payment that are required. There, some allow a monetary payment. Some require a life payment. You know, some crimes, like parking tickets, they allow us to pay a fine to satisfy justice. You know, it's a monetary payment. But some crimes require the exchange of a life in order to pay for that debt. Now, in our justice system, like many justice systems, there's two life payment forms. There is days of life spent in prison, that's paying out your life in terms of time. And then there's, well, there's the death penalty, which there's a lot of debate about right now. Now, Cain was thinking monetarily, commodity-wise, when he offered this sacrifice. He was probably thinking, look, I worked as hard for this produce as my, de- my brother did for, for that meat. Maybe he was thinking, my produce is as worth as much in the marketplace as as Cain's meat is. So, why is God not accepting mine with favor? But God wanted to make it very clear that the sacrifice that's going to be required is, is, is not measured monetarily. Sin is not like a parking ticket that can be paid for with any amount of money, it requires a life payment. Now, I want to just pause here for a moment and, and explain why that is. It's is very important for us to understand. Why is it? that our individual sin, our guilt that we're all aware of, why does that demand a life payment? Why can't it be something else? You know, just service of some kind or giving of some kind. Well, it turns out that our life is really a gift of time. It's a certain number of days. We all have a number. We don't know yet what number that is because we're still alive. But we've been given time. We've been given days. And we haven't just spent those days just kind of passing time. We've been exchanging those days. We've been doing something with those days. And it turns out that our past is a non-refundable purchase of the future. Every single day, we exchange it for something, some consequences that are going to be in the future. Now, some of those consequences we can see in this life, some of them we begin to see in this life, and they really show up in the life to come. Now, we can't go back in time and undo it. That's why we, we can't return what we've purchased with our days. We can't look at our life and say, you know what? I spent my 20s and 30s and 40s this way, and I don't like my 50s. I don't like what I've got. Well, you, you can't return. It's a non-refundable purchase of the future. And what we've all been exchanging our past for is a sinful past. The past for all of us is a sinful one. Some more, some less. But again, the reason we all feel guilt is because we've all exchanged our days. And if we really understand what God says about sin, pretty much every day there's been some taint of sin in it. And that sin is not just a moral failure. It is an exchange. Every single sin exchanges our past for death in the future, ultimately eternal death. Romans 6, 23, we saw this verse earlier, and this is the first part of the verse, says it very clearly. For the wages of sin is death. A wage is an exchange. You go to work this week, you are trading time for dollars. You give that time, And if you don't get dollars in return, well, then you've got a legal claim. You've made an exchange. And what sin exchanges our life for is death. It takes the time that we've sinned and exchanges that for death. Why? Well, it's because sin at its core is the decision to separate ourselves from God. Now, why does that earn us death? I mean, we we end relationships all the time. And it can be sad, but usually not deadly. But God is not just another person to end a relationship with, to go our own way and separate from. Now, it turns out our very existence, our, our very days, in fact, our every moment, our every breath, depends on God. We are sustained by Him. Time is is a day-by-day gift from him. And so to sin, then, is to isolate ourselves from the one who is granting us every breath that we take. That's why this sin, this isolation, is a, an exchange for death. And that is why, all the way back to Cain and Abel, God accepted Abel's sacrifice of an animal and not Cain's sacrifice of produce. It turns out this was the beginning of an entire system of animal sacrifices that God eventually set up. Rather than just allow meat to be eaten like it is now and was then, God used the process of coming up with that meat to explain the human problem. The very best of the herds were brought to the temple, and rather than slaughter them away from the public eye, like is done today in meat processing plants, they were sacrificed on an altar in plain view. And the purpose was not to be morbid, but the purpose was to make our situation very, very, very clear. And that is that we all carry a life death. Blood makes that point like nothing else can. That's partly why we don't like the sight of blood, because it reminds us of how fragile our life is. Leviticus 17.11 states it this way, for the life of a creature is in the blood, just like us. You don't have blood, you're not alive. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. It's not the meat, it's, it's the blood. To atone is to pay for the wrong that's done. So early on, God made it very, very clear that the only valid means of exchange for our life Is another life. The carrier carrier and symbol of life, of course, is blood. But of course, animal sacrifices could never really pay our life debt. They were were just a reminder of that debt. So in Hebrews 10, verses 3 through 4 in the New Testament portion of the Bible, we read this, those sacrifices were an annual reminder of sins. Because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Obviously, that, that never really resolved the, the life debt that we carried. Animal life is not a valid exchange for human life. That's because it's a different kind of life. Their life, therefore, has value, but it has a different value than our life does. Now, in our culture, we're getting a little fuzzy on this now, but most would still agree then human life is more precious than animal life. Animal life is precious, but human life is different. It's more precious. And that's why our laws still reflect this truth. So the only valid means of exchange for our sin is the life of another person. This is the point that was made year after year after year. But if someone was willing to give their life in exchange for you or for me, it still wouldn't be enough to pay the debt that we have incurred with our days. And that's because of requirement number two. Requirement number two is this. It also has to be an innocent life. It can't just be another life. It has to be an innocent life. The death penalty is the highest price that our justice system demands. But part of the debate over this right now is that even if death is the penalty that's given for the crime of murder that still never really satisfies justice, does it? I mean, that's because guilty blood can never be substituted for innocent blood. I mean, how could the death of a murderer pay for the life of the victim? It's just the most that we can ask and the most that we can demand for the worst of all crimes. But it still doesn't ultimately make that payment. This is why none of us could ever give our life in exchange for anyone else. The blood coursing through our veins is tainted by our sin. Now, we may not have committed murder, but we've all been earning the wages of sin with the days of our life so far. We need our past of sin and death exchanged for life. So only an innocent life can be given in exchange for us so where on this planet are we going to find innocent life? The second major sacrifice event in the Bible occurred in Genesis chapter 22. I encourage you to read that story this week, Genesis 22. But let me just summarize it for you. In that story, God told Abraham to take his son Isaac up to a mountain and sacrifice him there. Now, this is one of those stories in the Bible that people point to and say, you see, that is not the kind of God that I want to believe in. A God that would demand his father to sacrifice his only son, that's twisted. Now, even though God stopped him just short of plunging the knife into his son, you have to wonder why a loving God would do this. I mean, there's no getting around the fact that Every part of this story is a huge shock. I mean, as you read through it, you're just, what? What is going on here? Now, you'll have to realize it would also have been, and obviously because he was the one in the story, not just reading it, it would have been a complete shock to Abraham too. I mean, God had promised to make Abraham into a great nation. At the point of his promise, he even changed his name. His name was Abram, which means father of one. And he changed it to Abraham, which means father of many. Kind of a requirement if you're going to be the beginning of a nation. The problem was that he and his wife Sarah had major fertility problems. Finally, in his 90s, God miraculously fulfills his promise and Isaac is born. Just imagine the joy. Now imagine the shock when just a few years later God tells him to take that one son that had been miraculously provided, to answer to the promise, to take his son Isaac and sacrifice him. But as shocking as this is to us and must have been to Abraham, you have to understand in the context of the cultures around him, it was not shocking to the people of that day. That's because child sacrifice had become a common practice in the cultures of the world at this time. Why? Why would any culture do this? And this is not just an occasional thing. You study ancient history, this is common. Why? Well, it had grown out of the realization that the only kind of life that could be given in substitute for a guilty life was an innocent life. And what could be more innocent than the life of a child? Now, God had declared this as an abomination in his sight. But those were just words. Now, this God of Abraham was apparently falling in line with all of the other made-up gods of all of the other cultures. He was calling for the innocent blood of a child. So it would not have been surprising to anyone around at that time. But then, in what would have been a massive shock to the people of that day, God sent an angel to stop the knife and save the child. The message was loud and clear. You have to understand that this story would spread rapidly through the cultures of this world at that time. And every time it was told, you would hear the gasp of a dramatic shock that would be made over and over and over again. The point that would be made is a child may be the the closest thing to innocent blood you know but the God who made everything, who can send angels to stop knives, he is making it very clear that you are to never offer a child in sacrifice to God. So what's the answer? Where do we find innocent blood? Well, before God gives the answer to the problem, the problem gets even bigger with requirement number three. Requirement number three is, it also has to be eternal life. All right, now we're really stuck. You see, the reason is the biggest payment that any person could ever make is one life, their own life. I mean, the five quarts of blood flowing through my body right now in my veins, that's all I have. Once it's spilled, once it's poured out, there's nothing more I can offer. So even if I was perfect, and to be clear, I am not, And I had no sin, but I do. But even if I was perfect and had no sin, my life at most could only be exchanged for one other life five quarts for five quarts. The third major sacrifice event in the Bible occurred in Exodus chapter 12. The Jewish people were slaves in Egypt, and God sent Moses to free them. But it took ten plagues from God before. Pharaoh eventually relented and freed them. Every plague, if you've read through the the story or watched the movie, every plague grows in severity. And every single plague was avoidable. If Pharaoh would just submit to what God was saying and doing, the next plague would not have happened. But eventually, after nine plagues, we're now at the worst plague, plague number 10. It was the worst. It was the death of the firstborn sons. Now God, on this one, made it very, very clear how this could be avoided. Each house was to sacrifice an unblemished lamb and spread the blood of that lamb on their doorposts, over their doors. So in Exodus 12:13, we read this, The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. They were all living in Egypt. God wanted to make it very clear how to avoid this plague. This was a wide open offer that was made both to the Jews and to the Egyptians. On that night, it was the blood on the doorpost that spared the home from death. And then God instructed the Jews to gather in their homes annually after this occurred. To remember this event, it became known as Passover when death passed over the homes that had the blood on the doorposts. And for 1,500 years, the Jews gathered for the Passover meal and remembered the story of how God had freed them. The blood of that sacrifice was like the blood of all the previous sacrifices, it was a sign as it says here. Now, a sign is never the reality itself. It points to the reality. For example, this is a sign for Huntington Beach. You've seen this driving on the 405. This sign is not Huntington Beach. It just tells you where to exit if you want to go to Huntington Beach. There it tells you where to go. It points to the reality. It's not the real thing. It points to it. And so when God says all of this blood is a sign, what he's saying is all of these sacrifices are a sign pointing to the final sacrifice. (laughs) Passover was an annual reminder. God didn't want them to forget the point of the sign. He didn't want them to forget what the sign was pointing to. And then after 1,500 Passovers, Jesus stood up at the beginning of the Passover meal that he was celebrating with his disciples, and this is what occurred. We read it in Luke twenty-two, nineteen through 20. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you what? You have to, and we we struggle to do this because we didn't live at this time, but you have to imagine how mind-blowing this must have been for the disciples. Maybe this was their 30th or 35th Passover in their history. And all of a sudden, Jesus stands up at a Passover meal and says this. It turns out that the unleavened bread that they and their ancestors had been eating for centuries was really pointing to the body of Jesus that was about to be broken? What? That the blood of all those lambs was pointing to the blood of Jesus? This meant that every sacrifice from Abel until then was one long road of signs leading them to this moment. Now, Can you imagine being in the room to hear this? It was so shocking that it took the disciples a while for this to sink in. Because what that meant was that Jesus was going to die. I mean, that's what sacrifices do. And that was not a part of their plan for Jesus right then. But in a matter of hours, his blood had been, as he said, poured out for us, for them, poured out on a cross and then in three days, he'd risen from the dead, proving that the blood coursing through his vein was no ordinary blood. It was not only human life blood. It was real human life blood. It was not only innocent blood. He lived a perfect life without sin. No one who has or ever will walk the earth will be able to pull that off, but Jesus did. And it was also requirement number three, divine blood. That meant that his five quarts of blood poured out for us has no limit to the number of life life debts that it can pay for. Jesus, it turns out, wasn't just a man. This is what the resurrection that we celebrate on Sunday is about. He wasn't just a man. He is the eternal God. So in that final Passover meal, Jesus was telling them that the long, long, long road of sacrifices had now arrived at its intended destination. Each sacrifice was a sign pointing to this moment in time. The first sign pointed out that the sacrifice for sins can't be monetary. It has to be a life. The second sign pointed to the fact that it can't just be any life. It has to be a perfect human life. The third sign went on and on and on for 1,500 years, pointing to the need for an eternal, not just an annual solution to our sin. John the Baptist saw where all of these signs were pointing to the very first time he laid eyes on Jesus. He saw it. Here's what he says in John 1, 29. The, day, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here he is. It's where all the signs have been pointing. This is where the red thread of blood that's woven throughout the Bible leads to. So it turns out that it wasn't Abraham who would sacrifice his one and only son. It was God who would sacrifice his. At that last Passover, Jesus said, Do this in remembrance of me. What he's saying is, This is the new memorial meal. The Passover meal is now done because I'm fulfilling it. But for those who are seeking to be made right with me and have the debt of their sin passed over, this is the new meal. The bread is to be eaten in remembrance of how his body was beaten for us. And the wine is to be a symbol of his blood given in payment of the life debt that we owe. And that throughout all of human history, we have struggled to figure out how are we going to pay for this? That was a long, long, long path, a long, bloody path, with many sacrifices that led to Jesus. Why? Well, God wanted to make the signs clear. The signs are so clear that if, if people are not aware of this, it's because they're not looking. And most people are not looking. You know, nothing like the sight of blood to get our attention. But now that the signs have reached the destination, we have a decision to make. Will we keep working on the impossible task of paying for our own debt, or will we accept the payment of God's one and only Son who gave His life in exchange for ours? Now, those of us who have accepted the sacrifice of Jesus as a payment for our sin, we gather to remember. In fact, that's what we'll be doing this Friday, a good Friday. We'll be gathering to remember his sacrifice. And a part of what we'll be doing is just what Jesus told us to do. We'll be eating little pieces of bread to remember his body broken for us, and we'll be drinking grape juice to remember his blood that was poured out for us. We'll gather to remember that. The end of all of the blood in the Bible and the destination that it was pointing to, I invite you to join us to remember it. One of the reasons that we struggle so much with the presence of blood in the Bible is especially in our culture, we have this false idea that the human predicament is really not that bad. But all you have to do is look throughout human history, I mean, just the bloodiest century of all, the last century, to discover we have a massive problem. And just moral platitudes and moral improvements is not going not to carry the day. And so as we look to the Bible, we see this thread, this red thread woven throughout that describes in vivid detail the reality of our predicament and the solution, the one and only solution. A life, a perfect life, an eternal life. I think these two verses are one of the best summaries of the theme of blood in the pages of the Bible. They're found in 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. Let me close with this. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold. There wasn't a fine to be paid on this, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Let's pray. Father, we don't like the sight of blood. I know you don't like the sight of blood. But as sin entered into this world, things became bloody. And now we need a real solution. And we thank you for how clear you have been to point to the only solution that there is. How throughout the centuries and really millennia, you have embedded signs in history and in real events that point to the truth of the kind of exchange, the kind of payment that is required. So Jesus, we thank you for your willingness to take on a body, to humble yourself, to walk this earth, for 33 years, and then to allow the five quarts of your divine blood to be poured out for us. And we ask that you would help us to fully accept this. Sometimes we accept this, and then we keep trying to supplement it, thinking that our own actions will earn your favor. And in doing so, we minimize the value of the precious blood of Christ. You do want us to change and grow, but we don't change and grow to pay for our debt. That's been paid. And we thank you for that. And we look out at our neighborhoods and our workplaces, our schools, and this community, and we know that most of the people that we see are not looking at these signs. They're turning their heads away. And you know, they're unaware of the of the depth of their predicament. Oh God, we pray you would help us to be a part of loving them and showing them and pointing to the signs that you've put out there. We pray for those that we've invited for Easter that, oh God, you would move in their heart to draw them to visit and that they would hear the truth and that truth would resonate and they would decide, like so many of us, to follow you to accept your forgiveness. And as we gather this Friday in remembrance of you, we pray that you would be pleased and you'd be honored. We pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen.